Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to First Thessalonians chapter 1. This fall, we're going to work our way through the first and second epistles to the Thessalonians. And um, this is... Uh, both letters are written pretty close together, both by Apostle Paul. He's writing to a young church that he had planted along with Silas and Timothy, and Silas is just another name for Silvanus in our text here. So all three people that planted the church are writing this letter now. Their ministry in Thessalonica was cut short by a riot incited by some who opposed the gospel and rejected Paul's message. And so the missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy, had to leave rather quickly. And so sometime later, Paul sent Timothy to check on the church, on this young church, and Timothy brought a report back to him. And that report prompted the writing of these two letters. You can read in uh, Acts 17, kind of the background of how the church in Thessalonica started. But both of these letters deal largely with the topic of Christ's return. It seems like Paul just didn't get enough time with them to really explain what was going to happen when Jesus returned, so he's trying to supplement it in these letters, and the church is rather confused about the second coming. But not only does Paul explain what we should expect at Christ's return, but also what we should be doing while we are waiting for him. Hence, the name of the series is While You Wait. I could also have called it What to Expect When You're Expecting. It's a very similar theme. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ, but how does it affect us now? And Paul writes about it in these two letters. So we'll see there are many practical implications to our life now in light of Christ's return, including our relationships and work and all sorts of other stuff. So we'll be doing that throughout this, this fall. Well, the first question that the apostle tackles in his letter is this. How do you know? How do you know that you are among the number of those waiting 
for the Lord's return. See, not everybody should be excited about his return. For some people, it's not going to be a good thing. So how do you know you're in the group of people that is joyfully waiting for him to return, is excited about the judgment day because you will finally be vindicated and accepted with God forever and everything that you had hoped for would come true? How do you know you are a genuine Christian? I think that's a pretty important question, isn't it? Pretty important to know whether you should be excited about his return or not. How can we know if someone is a genuine Christian? So let's look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins the letter by highlighting these three virtues, faith, love, and hope, as a basis, as a foundation for our understanding of our relationship with God. The evidence of the Thessalonians' Christianity, of the genuineness of their faith, according to Paul, is the presence of these three virtues, faith, love, and hope. Someone said that they are like the three beautiful daughters of Job, dancing together as they rejoice in the Lord's blessings. And so as Paul looks at the Thessalonians' lives, he says, I see this dance of these three virtues. I see that faith, hope, and love are all working together. And that makes him think that they are genuine Christians. They should be looking forward to Christ's return. Now, if you are a careful reader of the Bible, and many of you are, you know and you recognize that this triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love, are common in the Apostle Paul's writings. He often refers to these three, specifically these three, to describe what Christianity is like, what practical Christianity, the Christian life, is like. There are many other passages you can go to, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, Colossians 1, that all highlight the triad of these virtues. But here in our text, Paul does something interesting, I think. He talks about the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness or endurance of hope. In other words, what he's saying is that the inner qualities of faith, love, and hope can be observed in the behavior of the Christian. Now, this is why he can say, I know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you. He can make that statement because he can see something in their lives. He's not just referring to works. He's not just referring to a lifestyle. He's referring to things that show him that there are faith, hope, and love in their lives. These essential Christian virtues are demonstrable. You can see them in the lives of Christians. So when Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, and later when Timothy visited the church, they observed the believer's faith, hope, and love. And based on what they saw, 
Paul can now write, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You know, it, it depend, depends on the circles you're in. Uh, you have churches and Christians that are, are very quick to give assurance of salvation to people. And sometimes it's false assurance. Sometimes it's based on something you did one time in your life. You said a prayer, you walked the aisle, you got baptized, you joined the church, and now there's no question whether to your relationship with God anymore. In other circles, you have the opposite side of the spectrum, where people are constantly digging into their hearts, wondering, am I saved? So you have unhealthy introspection, and you have false assurance on either side of the spectrum. And Paul gets us right in the middle of this. And he says, we can know. You can observe someone's life and reasonably deduce that they are a believer. On the other hand, on the other hand I don't think he's inferring that everybody in Thessalonica is for sure a Christian, and he knows that for sure. But he can tell, based on their lives, that they are believers. I think this is a good place to land for us. If you're wrestling with issues of assurance of your own relationship with God, look at your life. Ask other people, do you see the evidence of faith, hope, and love in my life? And if they do, and if you believe in the gospel, and we'll work through that today, just rest in that. Rest that God, by his grace, has chosen you and saved you. Don't spend too much time on unhealthy introspection. On the other hand, don't simply assume that just because you said something, you did something at one point in your life, you do have a relationship with God. You may not. And of course, there's always a possibility of deception and even self-deception. This is a difficult topic of assurance. But we want to make sure that the way we approach it is based on what the Bible tells us. And these are the categories that the Bible gives us. Faith, hope, and love as worked out in our relationship to the gospel of Jesus. So when Paul says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, he then goes on to work out faith, hope, and love in the way that the disciples in Thessalonica related to the gospel. So let's work through that. Paul saw their faith, hope, and love as they expressed those virtues in their embrace of the gospel of Jesus. More specifically, he saw that they received the gospel in faith. Their faith was expressed in their reception of the gospel. They held on to the gospel in hope, even in the midst of affliction. And finally, they shared the gospel in love. Faith relates, relates to their reception of the gospel. Hope relates to their maintaining and keeping the gospel, even in the difficult circumstances. And finally, love relates to their sharing of the gospel with others. So let's look at their faith as it relates to their embrace of the gospel. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now this is the logic. He says, we know that you are God's elect because of how the gospel came to you. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. But what is this gospel that 
the Thessalonians embraced in faith and did it in such a way that Paul concluded that this must be real. Well, in verses 9 and 10, Paul summarizes the gospel for us. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me when you read Paul's letters how he's never more than a few verses away from reminding us what the gospel is. You can always, always find these formulations, these, these quick summaries of the gospel. It's as if he doesn't want us to forget what the whole thing is based on. So look at verses 9 and 10. This is how Paul summarizes the gospel. He says that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the message. That's the gospel. And the gospel in the ancient world, and you may know this, the term gospel was used when a king would send news of a victory or maybe a new king would be put on the throne. And so people would get this message, this good news that now another person reigns or that person is, is won the victory for us. So it's joyous news of something that the king has done that was considered to be the gospel. Now, of course, in the Christian sense, the gospel is what Jesus has done for us and the news of that coming to us in verbal form to transform our lives. So the gospel is about Jesus who died but was raised from the dead, who is coming again. And because of what Jesus did, we can now turn from idols to the real God. The gospel is that announcement of what Jesus has done, and more specifically, what he has done for us. He delivers us from the wrath to come. Whose wrath? Whose wrath? God's wrath. God's wrath. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Humanity lives under God's wrath. Now, why, why is God angry with us? Because we worship idols. I mean, you see the change in, in the Thessalonians that turned away from their idols toward God to serve the real and true God. So the problem is that they were not serving the real God. They were not worshiping the real God. We do not serve the real God. We do not worship the real God, and this is why God is angry with us. In Romans 1.25, Paul says, We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. I mean, that, that's our core problem. What is the problem with humanity? What, is, what has gone wrong with us? We've exchanged God for something else. We've exchanged his truth for a lie. And we've put creatures, something God created, onto his throne, and we have replaced God with other things and people. That's our issue. We may have different idols, but we all have them. The people in Thessalonica worshipped all kinds of Greek and Roman gods. They worshipped the emperor in the proud and prosperous city. They worshipped money and freedom and pleasure. Now, you may worship the American dream or a certain political ideology. You may worship sex or wealth or status or academic achievement. You can worship your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or your children. Whatever it is, 
We have placed it on God's throne. So if that's true, if we are idol worshipers, that means we're not worshiping God, that means we are traitors in God's kingdom. That's the problem. God should be angry with us. He's supposed to be angry with us. We have usurped his power. We have placed someone else or something else in his place on the throne in his kingdom. I'm a traitor. I've not accepted God's rule. I have not worshipped him as he deserves. I have not obeyed his law. And I am rightly under God's wrath. How can he not be angry with us when we consistently and deliberately oppose his rule and pledge allegiance to another kingdom? If you go to Acts 17, which is the background for the Thessalonians' epistles, we read about the origin of the church in Thessalonica. The people of the city are actually very perceptive about the power of the gospel, more perceptive than many of the Christians today. The people of the city are angry with Paul and Timothy and Silas. So they're running around looking for them, but they can only find Jason and a few other converts. So they drag them before the authorities. And this is what the mob, the, this is what the people are shouting. Verses 6 and 7 of Acts 17. They're saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. What a perceptive indictment. They're absolutely right. They saw exactly what the gospel was. When the gospel takes root in a community, it exposes idolatry. It tells us what's wrong with us. It shows us what we worship. And it moves us to get rid of our idols. This is how the gospel works. Of course, we worship another king. So our relationship with the present king will be adjusted, whether it's a political king or a king that rules our heart or a king that rules our particular part of the community. Whoever he is, whatever it is, whatever that God is, that idol is, when the gospel takes hold of you, that idol is exposed. And so the people in Thessalonica saw the danger. And they're saying, these people, they have turned the world upside down. They're not looking at life as we are. They're not worshiping the same idols as we are. They've come to our town, and Jason, Jason has accepted them. They've stayed at his house. He's one of them now. And there are other people who are embracing this message. And this message is nothing less than treason. Because the King Jesus is not going to share the throne with Caesar. They're worried, and they should be. I wonder if anybody in our community thinks the same of our church. Looking at us saying, these people, they have turned the world upside down and they worship another king. They are dangerous because our idols are exposed. Idols may be different. Our hearts are the same in as much as that we long for something to worship and we grab onto something or someone but there may be different idols and different objects of worship and devotion. 
But when the gospel enters your heart, and when you receive it in faith, this is where faith, that inner virtue, becomes external because you start seeing that. When your faith really takes root, when it becomes really real, you realize that Jesus is the king who saves you from God's wrath. And that's the message. If that takes root in your heart, the idols are exposed. And so you reject the idols, and you turn to God, and you start worshiping and serving the living and true God. And that is exactly what happened in Thessalonica. Because the gospel came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the new believers' faith made them reject their idols. And now that fact, that experience of siding with Jesus against other authorities gives them assurance of their own conversion. What do you worship? Whom do you worship? Who's your king? Does the gospel expose your idolatry? Or are you comfortable by simply adding Jesus to your other idols? I think often the choice is not Jesus against everybody else. That should be the choice. But often the choice as we present it is Jesus and everything else versus everything else without Jesus. We are too quick to just add Jesus to the pantheon of our idols. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's a king. He doesn't share his throne. We already deposed him. And now he comes back to us in grace. We cannot add him to other idols. He has to reign supreme in your life, which means that other idols have to be exposed and dealt with. And if that is not happening in your life, you have to wonder if you really understand the gospel. Because the gospel isn't about adding, it's about replacing. You're not adding another identity to all your other identities you've had. You're replacing all your other identities with the new identity of a new creature in Christ. Do you believe that Jesus delivers you from God's wrath? If you believe that you are a sinner under God's wrath, this is tremendous news. But if you're okay with sin, if you're okay with idolatry, what has Jesus really come to do for you? We need to feel our relationship with sin deeply before the good news becomes the good news for us. Do you believe that you used to be a traitor, but now that Jesus has come into your life, you've become a child of the King? Because that's how radical, that's how transformative conversion is. But how does Jesus deliver us from God's wrath? How does he turn us from traitors into God's children? He does that by taking upon himself the consequences of our rebellion. When Jesus came, he lived as a perfectly obedient, loyal, devoted human being. And yet he was executed as a rebel, one who had no place in this world. He suffered and died willingly in place of all idolaters and traitors. He did it for us. I'm going to quote R.C. Sproul here to describe what happened on the cross, and this is strong language. I think he's right to use this language, but it is jarring because of what happened on the cross. We need to get how jarring it was for Jesus to die for sinners. The cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just 
and the most gracious act in history. God would have been more than unjust. unjust. He would have been diabolical to punish Jesus if Jesus had not first willingly taken on himself the sins of the world. Once Christ had done that, once he volunteered to be the Lamb of God, laden with our sin, then he became the most grotesque and vile thing on this planet. Please listen to what happened. Jesus became the most grotesque and vile thing on the planet when he was laden with our sin. With the concentrated load of sin he carried, he became utterly repugnant to the Father. God poured out his wrath on this, on this obscene thing. God made Christ accursed for the sin he bore. Herein was God's holy justice perfectly manifest. Yet it was done for us. He took what justice demanded from us. This for us aspect of the cross is what displays the majesty of its grace. At the same time, justice and grace, wrath and mercy, it is too astonishing to fathom. Our faith, if it's real, is a reaction to that, is a reaction to God dying for sinners, reaction to the king being executed for rebels so that rebels can be spared the king's wrath. Do you believe that? If you believe that, that's faith, and that faith will work itself out in the embrace of that gospel. People will know that you believe this. If you believe this, if the gospel really grips you, if you embrace it with full conviction as the Thessalonians did, if it has power to destroy your idols, if the Holy Spirit has produced real faith in your heart, well, then you can be excited about the return of Jesus when you will be welcomed into the joy of the true and living God to be with him forever because of what Jesus has done for you. The gospel received in faith. This is what it looks like. Rejection of idols, serving the living and true God, real faith, embracing the whole gospel as a word from God, not from men. Second trait. This is what Paul sees in them that makes him think that they are true believers. It's how they kept the gospel in hope, how they held on to the gospel in hope. Look at verses 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The gospel came to Thessalonica like to most cities in the midst of persecution and affliction. The church was born in a riot. And the Thessalonians became imitators of the missionaries, imitators even of Jesus, in that they too were persecuted for their commitment to the gospel. The first converts were nearly killed for their faith in Christ. But even in persecution, they held on to the gospel. There was the joy of the Holy Spirit in affliction. 
and their endurance of hope, their steadfastness of hope, their perseverance became an example to other believers in the area. That's amazing. They imitated the missionaries who had imitated Christ, and then other people started imitating the Thessalonians. That's discipleship. They're making disciples. They're becoming like Christ because they're becoming like Paul and the, and, and the other missionaries. And then other people are looking at them and they're saying, we're going to be like them. So they too are enduring persecution and hope like the Thessalonians. This steadfastness, this endurance in affliction is fueled by hope. Without hope, avoiding suffering makes perfect sense. If what I experience now is all there is, why would I complicate my life by holding on to the gospel that causes me hardship? Think logically about that. If what makes my life difficult is my Christian commitment, and if this is what all that, that there is, all that exists is this life, is right now, why am I doing this? Wouldn't it be easier just to give up on the gospel and live a better life? But not for the Thessalonians and not for all genuine Christians. Our endurance is fueled by hope. If there is something better promised to me, if this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, then we can endure it with joy. And that is what the Thessalonian believers are doing here. And Paul looks at that, and he sees that as evidence of their election. A genuine Christian runs toward God in affliction. When you're hurting, you go to your father. You go to him. I've seen many people throughout my rather brief ministry disappear when suffering touches them. And you wonder, what happened? And often what happened is that they have concluded that the gospel has failed them. But the gospel does not promise the absence of pain. It doesn't. A preacher may promise it to you. But the gospel itself, the word of God, does not promise that once you commit to Jesus, your life will be free of pain. What it does promise is that our pain would be meaningful that our pain is worth it. In fact, that our pain is necessary. Suffering tests our embrace of the gospel. Suffering rattles us to make sure that we actually are holding on to the gospel with a firm grip. It tests you. Do we really treasure Jesus above all? Well, how do you know that? You don't know until other things are taken away. And then you know. If you're running toward God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of persecution, the gospel is real in your life. You have a real hope. You can put your life in perspective and say, this is a momentary light affliction. But in light of the eternal weight of glory, this is completely worth it. Because if I have Jesus, I will have everything I need. Now that's a, that's a distinctly Christian perspective. It accepts the reality of suffering and persecution. But it doesn't just see it just as bad or just as good. It's both. It's hard and it's painful, but it's worth it. And so you hold on 
to the hope that you have in Christ in the midst of suffering. And that becomes the evidence of your election. So when you look at your life, you look at someone else's life, and you say, they have suffered well. They must have this hope. They must see their life in terms that are broader than this experience right now. They must know something about Jesus that allows them, that enables them, that empowers them to go through an experience like this. And both in your own life and in the life of others, you can see that as evidence of the genuineness of their commitment to Christ. It's only in suffering that we discover the supernatural quality of the Christian life. I mean, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit a couple of times in this passage. First, the gospel comes in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, full assurance. And then as they suffer, suffer, they suffer with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a supernatural influence in our lives. He cannot be explained by human means. He comes as the gospel comes into your life, so comes the Holy Spirit. And you discover that in your life things happen that are just weird and strange, and it's not how things are in the world. You realize that you can suffer well and you can even be joyful in the midst of suffering, not denying the reality of pain, but yet being joyful because of the hope you have. Where does that come from? The Holy Spirit. He does it. He does it. He does it for his children. He comes alongside. He doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't allow you just to be afflicted by yourself, but he will come and comfort you and, yes, even bring you joy in the midst of suffering. How is it possible to have joy in affliction? Joy comes from the Holy Spirit who reminds us of the hope we have in Christ. And finally, the last, the third trait that Paul sees in the Thessalonians that we can see in ourselves, and that is that we share the gospel with others in love. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is a remarkable statement from a missionary. Paul says that the Thessalonians were so active in evangelism that the missionaries did not need to go and preach in certain areas. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you guys have been so effective in spreading the gospel into these towns and cities around you. We've changed our itinerary. We don't have to go to some places because you've already been there. Isn't that amazing? This is Paul's strategy from the beginning. He, he wants to go to big cities. He wants the churches to take root and grow and then spread over all the surrounding areas. But for that to happen, the Christians there need to share the gospel in love. Now, the location of Thessalonica is important. It's a city that allowed for the gospel to spread rapidly. There's something about that place that enabled the gospel to go forth quickly. It was a large and prosperous city. It was a seaport city crisscrossed by the east-west and north-south trade routes. In fact, this was the best-case scenario for Paul. If he could reach Thessalonica, the word would spread 
on surrounding areas, and it went even beyond what he expected. I heard that in the walkway that circles the inside of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, right under the dome, if you whisper a word, it can be heard clearly directly across 137 feet. This is just how it was constructed. The design of it, the architecture of it, allows you to communicate if you're in a certain place in this what's called whispering gallery. You can whisper and somebody could hear you all the way across on the other side of the dome. That's the genius of the architect. But the design, God's design, God's providential design of Thessalonica, where it was at the time it was, made it possible for the gospel to spread everywhere. Now, of course, it wasn't just the location. It required the believers to share the gospel with others out of their love for Jesus, out of their love for others. It was their labor of love. And Paul saw it as evidence of how genuine their faith in Christ was. How much, how much do you love Jesus? Enough? to be involved in his work? How much do you love others? Enough to tell them about Jesus? I'll finish with this. I have a friend who became a Christian, grew up in a Muslim family, became a Christian in his 20s, who told me that after he became a believer, he ran into someone he used to play basketball with in high school. They used to go to this church to play basketball in a church gym, to remind you of any ministries that we have here. He used to go and just play with his buddy and several other people. And once he got converted, he realized that that was that guy's church. That's why he had keys. That's why he would bring friends to play basketball. And once he got converted, he ran into his friend, and, and he said, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Why didn't you tell me that I could be saved from God's wrath. We saw each other every week for months, and you never told me that you are a follower of Christ and you have this message to give me? The implication is, what, what kind of friend are you? How much did you really like me that you withheld this most important news that I needed? When you think about your life, do your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your co-workers, do they know you are a Christian? Have you told them about Jesus? Do you love them enough to share the gospel? I'm not talking about pestering people who don't want to hear the gospel. That's not what I mean. But there's probably people in our lives that have never heard the gospel from us. And maybe they're waiting. Maybe they need to hear it from us. Our church, we do a lot of things in the community in terms of evangelism, in terms of modeling the gospel and verbally communicating the gospel. And like Paul, I am just thrilled to be able to say that in so many areas of ministry in our church, I don't need to do anything because you have done so well. Because so many of you are so committed to Christ's work. So many of you are, are so loving towards your neighbors. 
And you love Jesus so much that you put a lot of time and effort and money towards these ministries to the point where the staff of the church can say, I, I think that's fine. <laughs> I think they're doing really well on their own. What a wonderful thing for me to be able to say that, and I mean it sincerely. To be able to look at you and say, so many of you are so faithful to the point where the gospel is spreading in all different corners of our community. Let's keep praying that the Lord would bless it as we whisper the gospel, as we sound it forth, that it would be accepted in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction that we would see converts, real converts, not those who just have heartedly agreed with us on something, but real converts whose life would be transformed, who would walk away from their idols and embrace the true and living God. And even in affliction, even in persecution, would live in hope. And they themselves, having been discipled by us, become disciple makers of others. That's my prayer.